Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be back and to see all of you again. Um, I want to talk for a few minutes today about a book I know we've all read numerous times, the book of Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. Uh, you know, it used to be, especially among early Christians, that the prophets were read extensively. In part because for the very early Christians, they didn't have the New Testament written down. And I think it's to our uh, disadvantage, to our, uh, our, our, our deficit, if you will, that we don't read from the prophets nearly as much today as we used to. Because the prophets are where God is telling his people, wake up. It's important, and I've got this message to you, please change your course, or bad things are going to happen. And Zephaniah is considered one of the minor prophets. It was actually called by the Jewish people part of the 12, 12 minor prophets, in part because they would all fit on one regular-sized scroll. And so when, you know, we didn't have, they didn't have books that would open up with a binding. It was a big, long scroll. So all of these 12 would fit on one scroll. So they got to be known as the 12, one unit together. Well, Zephaniah has three chapters, three chapters. And I believe it's a very important uh, book for us to look through here fairly quickly this morning. If you're watching, uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, there's a handout that goes with it that I'm sure Robbie or Jeff would be more than happy to email you if you would ask for it, if you want to see it. Uh, but we will take a look here at Zephaniah. The author, no surprise, is Zephaniah. Uh, we really don't know anything else about him, despite the fact that the book starts off with a four or five generation uh, genealogy. We really don't know anything about him at all. Uh, the date is usually considered somewhere near the middle of Josiah's reign. Remember Josiah, the boy king? He came on the scene after the worst king that the southern kingdom ever had, Manasseh. Uh, this king that uh, had been his father slash grandfather uh, had been the reason God had said, that's it. I've given you, Judah, the southern kingdom, quite a few opportunities, but I've had it. I've had it. It was so bad, so terribly bad, that no matter what happened after that, the doom of Judah was already written down. And then Josiah comes on the scene, and Zephaniah speaks to God's people during the reign of Josiah. He is the ninth of the twelfth minor prophets. They are not organized sequentially in terms of uh, date, but he's in the ninth position. This book is not quoted in the New Testament. There are several books of the Old Testament that are not quoted in the New. The book of Esther is not referenced anywhere in the New Testament, but it's a curiosity that Zephaniah is not mentioned. It was not very popular in Jewish or even early Christian uh, circles. That they weren't too unlike us today. It's not as if Zephaniah is one that we, wait, 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 I've got five minutes. So I'm going to read something from Zephaniah, but I think perhaps we should. It carried some overtones of references to Jesus among those early Christians. And we'll look at that 
at the very end of the lesson today. Overview. Most of this book deals with the total and devastating divine judgment that was going to be coming to the people of God and foes alike. While it may sound like a simple prediction of the coming doom that's all there, you know, we really don't grasp what God's trying to get across to us if we only apply it to the past. It certainly is speaking to Jerusalem in the time of Josiah. It certainly is speaking to the foes of Jerusalem and Judah at that time. I see a lot of application to our circumstances locally, in our country, and in our world. So when we're seeing the problems that Zephaniah is going to point out, I'm going to be pointing out how nothing much really has changed. Some people uh, with a hard message begin with pleasantries before they get down to business. Uh, you probably noticed that. Hey, John, how you doing? And you're looking good today, but really I got to tell you you're fired. <laughs> or something like that. I mean, whatever we have to do, we like to start off with something fairly positive because, you know, that's kind of our social way of talking about things. Not so with uh, Zephaniah. He just jumped straight on in because in verse 2, speaking for God, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. So there are no initial pleasantries coming from Zephaniah here in this message. The first section is chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. It's believed that given the way he's talking, that he's likely giving this message on the temple grounds. You know, sometimes we think of the temple as the building kind of like this, but the temple complex, the temple grounds that existed in Jerusalem were rather large, and the temple was a small part of that entire area. There was the temple courtyard that surrounded the temple. And there were certain areas where only Jewish people could cross into. And then there were what came to be known as the court of the Gentiles that was bigger and on the outside edge of it. Somewhere on these temple grounds is where it's believed Zephaniah is delivering this message. If that's correct, he takes the very common, ordinary, everyday activities of people sacrificing to God, buying the animals that they were going to be sacrificing to God, really coming to the temple in order to worship God, these fairly joyful activities, and changes the tone from joyful to a prediction of doom. So he addresses these individuals who happen to have been lucky or unlucky enough to be there when he begins speaking, and denounces these activities for corruption and perversion of what God intended that's involved here. Why? Why does he have these really tough statements that he needs to make to the people. Why? What's going on? What's the problem? The first problem, the religion that's going on is corrupt. It's corrupt. Uh, although a seemingly a fairly happy scene, I mean, these people have come to offer sacrifices to God. Uh, they have denied the very foundational character of what they're doing by all the other things that they're doing. For example, the priests had engaged in the worship of Baal. Baal is the Canaanite god that Israel had had a tough time with the entire period since they came into the land of Canaan. So these people who are priests of God are actually worshiping idols on the side. I mean, how would you really think it would go across very well if 
your preacher or an elder or somebody like that is actually also worshiping Allah on the side. That wouldn't go come across very well, but it would be that kind of disconnect. And that's what's going on with the priests in the temple. The people at twilight were going up on their rooftops and actually calling upon, invoking the authority of the gods that were in the sky. Uh, you know, we see constellations, and those constellations, if you know anything about them at all, represented pictures in the sky formed by the stars that were associated with, you know, the Greek and Roman gods and whoever managed to get history written with the names of the constellations that way. And so you have Pegasus, the winged horse. You have Scorpius, the, uh, the scorpion that everybody was afraid of in those kind of climates. And you have even the planets named after the Greek and Roman gods, Mars, the god of war. That, by the way, if you get a queer night, is shining very, very brightly orange, the brightest thing in the sky right after sunset coming up in the east. Well, the houses at the time were, didn't have slanted roofs the way we might usually picture most houses today. They were flat-topped. And there would often be a stairway going up on the outside of the house. You could use the space on the top of the house too. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, goes up to the top of the house, waiting, it seems, for dinner to be ready. And because it's a hot day and he's hungry, he falls into a trance and God lowers that sheet with all the animals down in front of him. Trying to make the point that what God has called clean, you need to not call unclean. A very strong message against Racial prejudice between Jew and Gentile that we all need to make sure we remember. But on the top of that roof, right? Well, in jo uh, Josiah's time, when Zephaniah is speaking, people were going up on the top of the roof invoking the gods in the sky. Astral worship. Very correct. They had made oaths using God's name. Jesus would say not to do that at all a few hundred years later. But that they had invoked the name of God and as if for good measure as a backup, they had invoked them also in Milcom, another idol's name. Doesn't sound like they're really all that devoted to God. The problem is the decades, Man Manasseh was king for nearly 60 years, and all of that he had done of idol worship, offering children to idols, all of the terrible, terrible bad influence that Manasseh had brought were really hard to sweep away in just a few short years. And it appears, too, that this is when Josiah is really still a kid. And it's tough as a 10-year-old, perhaps even if you're king, to sweep away practices going on out in the countryside. But religion had not been abandoned in the temple, but it had been warped and confused where it really was hard to recognize. So religion was corrupt. Government had also failed. The people in charge of ruling the people, not so much the king, but many times the king, much like a president, is up here at the top. But then you got everybody else that's really running stuff, right? The, the people in the administration, the people who were uh, involved in getting the job done, uh, they had started wearing clothing representing the powers in the world, the Assyrians. They had a very distinct way of looking with their hair and their beards and the clothing. And so... Uh, Zephaniah condemns these people because they are already in their minds no longer really Jewish, but they are Assyrian because 
They're the powers in the world. That's what we need to start looking like. The government, uh, when it led in a certain direction, the people followed. And then the biggest problem, perhaps of all, among the people themselves, right? The priests, the uh, civic leaders, the, the people running the place, and then the people. Apathy and indifference were widespread. Apathy and indifference. The prophet describes God searching through Jerusalem with a lamp, looking for those who were watching what was going on around them, hoping that some people would be awake and alert to the problems that existed. But they were doing nothing to stop it or correct it. And the text says that the people were thinking, the Lord will not do good, nor will he, nor will he do ill. He's not going to reward me. He's not going to punish me. God is essentially a missing person in their day-to-day -day lives. Now, that's a problem when you think about the people in charge of religion, the priests being corrupt, the people in charge of running the country being corrupt, and the people not really caring. Well, I want you to think about that for a minute. In our society today, is it really that different? So many people who put themselves forward as religious leaders show corruption. It used to be you had the televangelists, that their key sign was the huge mansion and all the gold. And what happened? So many times if you lifted up the curtain, you found they were not living remotely like they were talking about. And civic leaders. Does it surprise you? It seems that when anybody goes to become a senator in this country, no matter how poor they were when they went to become a senator, they leave millionaire. How does that happen? It's not through the pay they get as a senator. Somehow or other, money just comes to me when I'm in the U.S. Senate. It's, yeah, personally, I would rather be ruled by the president, picked at random out of a phone book. Some of you remember what those were. Flip the page and let it fall, put a finger, let's make that person president because they're le certainly less likely to have any corruption. And that's not an R or a D thing. I don't care. Power corrupts. It corrupted people ruling the Jewish people then. It would it be a surprise if I told you it's very prevalent today, locally, statewide perhaps, and in the nation and the world? No, power does it all the time. And then the people. How many people in this city yesterday do you think got up and went to bed without ever having thought of God at all? I bet a lot of people. People are corrupt. God didn't come yesterday. I bet he doesn't come today. So I'm going to do whatever I want to do. The problems of Zephaniah's day are the problems, I'm going to say, of our day, basically. Because they're always the problems. Here's a statement from uh, someone who lived in the 1800s. I loved it because it pointed out the real issue. He says, the great causes of God are not defeated by the assaults of the devil but by the slow, glacier-like mass of indifferent nobodies. He's talking about you and me, if we're not standing for what's true. God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being sat upon. You know, that's probably one of the best arguments you can make for the importance of Lindsley Avenue. Because it's too easy 
I've said this before, for so many of us who live out in the suburbs to be kind of indifferent out in the suburbs to the plight, the trouble, the help that needs to come to so many people who need to know God inside. In, in, the, in Washington, they talk about the Beltway. Right? I don't know exactly what that means. But they always talk about it. I would say inside the interstate circle. Lindsley Avenue is uniquely positioned to make a difference in people's lives because it's very difficult to be indifferent when you're living in the middle of people that need help. There weren't people like that in Judah in the time of Zephaniah. He then talks a great deal in this opening section about the day of the Lord. Because of these three problems, corrupt religious people, corrupt rulers and people in authority, and indifferent people in the population, the day of the Lord's coming, disaster's coming. Unlike creation, where the six days are all spoken of as being good, right? The day of the Lord, six times in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, are described in very ungood terms. Take that contrast. Everything's good in Genesis chapter 1 in creation. What happens here in Zephaniah when the day of the Lord's coming? Take a look. There's going to be a day of wrath. There's going to be a day of distress and anguish. There's going to be a day of ruin and devastation. There's going to be a day of darkness and gloom. There's going to be a day of clouds and thick darkness. And there's going to be a day of trumpets and battle cries. That doesn't sound like a lot of good days to come. It's not going to be a very good day when the day of the Lord comes. Zephaniah does not see the day of the Lord either as some really great cosmic event. But it's a day that's, that's it's not a day that's beyond human control. Look at this. The root of the day of the Lord lies in human lives and human choices. Certainly is that way in Zephaniah's time. It's going to happen, he's really telling, because of each of you. Well, what that says to me is we can affect the day of the Lord by being people who are not sitting on the call to action. In chapter 2, verse 4 through 15, Zephaniah now broadens this destruction beyond Jerusalem to the, the foes, the neighboring nations. Uh, one of the other minor prophets, a couple of the other minor prophets speak really to the enemies of God's people. Obadiah speaks of Edom, the descendants of Esau, and really says, you guys are going to get it. Nahum is very concerned with Assyria. So God speaks not only to his people, but to the people that have been messing with his people. And so here he begins to talk about Israel's neighbors. He talks about the Philistines, Israel's neighbors to the west. Their populated coastal cities would become pasture lands for the shepherds. You've been picking on my people long enough. Doom's headed your way too. Not just to my people, but to you. It then talks about Moab and Ammon. These are the neighbors of Israel a little north of where Edom was. Uh, Ammon is actually still a, a, a name you may hear. Ammon, Jordan. Right? Just on the other side, you hear the West Bank and all that kind of stuff. Modern day Israel. Ammon, the name for Ammon, Jordan, comes from Ammon right here. We say it a little differently usually when we see it in the Old Testament. But in 
their circumstance. They had taunted Israel in her day of distress. And they were going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Desert life. No real remnant of you is going to survive. Then about Ethiopia and Assyria. He uses Ethiopia, but that's often used to describe Egypt and Ethiopia. Essentially the, the nations of the Nile River over there in North Africa. And Assyria. So both of these nations have been fighting during the time of Manasseh for control of the world. They're both about to get it. They're going to soon be empty shells of what they were. Doom's coming for them in the form of the Babylonians. The Assyrians would just disappear off the scene because Babylon would come through and suddenly be running everything. In chapter 3, verse 1, Zephaniah now calls out directly the corruption in Jerusalem. Instead of a city of peace in Jerusalem, the Salem in the name comes from the word for peace. The Jewish people today will say shalom. That means peace. Jerusalem. Jerusalem means peace. It wasn't much a city for peace in the time of Zephaniah. It had become rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Well, a city is like a ship in some ways. Uh, it's vulnerable to the directions of the person at the helm. I mean, the ship may hit the rocks depending on how you steer it. Well, the people steering, right, the city of Jerusalem had been headed for the rocks for a long time. Um, these people ruling the city had behaved like roaring lions. Instead of protecting the people in the city and in the countryside, they started viewing the people they should have been protecting as prey. Right? That's what the lion does. Looks for the weak. And the officials running the city had started taking advantage of the weak. Does that happen in today's society? Yeah, it does. That's how our people that are ruling different areas of our government somehow seem to make lots of money. Where does that money come from? It comes off the backs of people that make it. There's not a lot of difference. I'm not going to overly stress that. But the message of Zephaniah is a message for today. Absolutely. Prophets, we are told had spoke the words the people wanted to hear for a price. And these aren't prophets coming from God. These are people who recognize they want to hear a message of reassurance. I'll give them reassurance. How much does that cost me? So they were making money off of saying what people wanted to hear. So this coming judgment would point out this delusion that a fortified city, the walled city of Jerusalem, was going to keep everyone safe. It did have walls, and they fell. They thought that the walls would protect them in the time of the rebellion against Rome in 67 to 70 AD. Didn't protect them then either. In the second Jewish rebellion, we often don't know about, 135 AD, again the walls didn't protect them. Nothing. Nothing's going to be able to protect God's people when they're not following God. Because when you're not following God, you used to be God's people. And they aren't anymore. The latter part of chapter uh, 3, verse 8 through 13, talking about judgment and survival. Verse 8 ought to be, in chapter 3, one of the most chilling things you ever read. After all of this, God says, therefore, wait for me. I'm coming. I don't want to be disrespectful at all, but this is kind of the ultimate wait till your father gets home. 
And the whole time, once you heard that, and depending on how old you were, right, you knew bad, something bad is coming. Something bad is coming. It's really going to be bad, God says. I tell you what, wait for it. You know, you've heard it said that way. Wait for it. Because the day of doom is on the way. Wait for me. I don't ever want to hear God in any way imply to me, Gene, wait for me. Because you're going to have to answer. That's what the population then, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of our neighbors really are facing if we don't do what we need to be doing. Living our lives the way Jesus would have us live. And being willing to talk about the fact that Jesus changed who we are. Zephaniah, wait for it. There's good news and bad news. The destruction is not going to be Jerusalem's final end. Because there, the destruction is inevitable, but there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. Look at verse 9. He said, For them I shall transform for the people a language for her generation, for all to call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him under one yoke. The promise to come is that there's going to be, not merely at this point, a Jewish religion, but a way for all to serve God. Some early Christians, again, it's not used much, but they looked at this as a prophecy, if you will, of the coming. We're all going to come together to call upon God. So even in such a dreadful setting, there's hope. In the last part of chapter 3, this postscript of joy, there's a dramatic change of tone in the last six verses. The last six verses. Early Christians, as I say, use this change to refer to the Christ, coming Christian age. Redemption for real, forever, that was going to come with Jesus coming upon the scene. Look what verse 20 says. I will bring you home. I will. Speaking to his people, God says, I will bring you home. That promise still exists today. Now on the handout, on the very, very back of it, You've got two sections here of how the early Christians used it. That's more for curiosity's sake than anything else, how they used Zephaniah. Uh, one individual here, Jerome, he's the one that translated the Bible to Latin, which was the Bible, more or less, of the world for close to a thousand years. That statement about God looking through Jerusalem, looking for someone who was not indifferent, someone that cared as he searched through Jerusalem, Strangely enough, at least to me, in Mark 11, before Jesus, the night before Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple, we are told that Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem searching. And he looked through the temple. And when it got dark, after not having found anything, he went out and joined the disciples. They viewed that as a prediction here in Zephaniah of searching through Jerusalem where God did that, of Jesus looking for someone in Jerusalem that cared in the temple. And not finding any the next day, he confronted the money changers. The other statement in here is from Chrysostom. He was over in the Eastern Roman Empire, wrote a lot of stuff. He viewed a statement in here about um, the, from Isaiah about the lion laying down with the lamb and how everything was going to be peaceful. Not so much as a prophecy about really what animals would do, but people. People, not so much wild animals, but wild people 
When God came in the form of Jesus, the change is remarkable. No longer do you have any wild people anymore because we all become God's people. If God is truly ruling our lives and we are living our lives the way God would have us live them, then people from whatever background, white or black, U.S. or outside the U.S., it does not matter because you are no longer white, black, U.S., foreign. There is no difference because we are God's people. But that only happens if you have God ruling in your life. So here at the end, if you are not yet a member of God's family, you need to be today. And if you're watching and listening later, you need to be a member of God's family today as well. The only way that can happen is to recognize sin in your life, to know that God calls you to change, to turn your life from wrong to right, to confess that you in fact have been guilty of sin and confess that Jesus is God's son, and then to change your life, no longer living for yourself, but living for God by being immersed in water and raised to walk in a new that's what we all have to do. And if you haven't done that yet, you need to do it. If you are already a member of God's family, am I living a life of indifference? Did I think about God yesterday? Did you? If not, God has a message for us. We cannot remain indifferent. So if you are already a member of God's family and there's anything that we can help you with by prayer and taking your name to God, whether you're here or whether you are at home, this call is for you today as well. Please think about that as we stand and sing.